So let's get started here. And as we get started, I want to make sure we understand the big idea in these first 13 verses. The big idea is God calls us to have a heart of humility and obedience. And we're going to see that played out through the life of John the Baptist and through the life of Jesus. But in order to do that, I always like to define our terms to make sure as we begin. We're going to understand the idea of humility. As we think about the idea of humility, we're not talking about being humiliated. We're talking about the concept of humility. The concept of humility is the lowliness of mind. It's where your mind, you understand who you are, and also understanding one's own importance follows in the idea of humility. Where pride gives us an, a well, almost a false view of oneself, humility gives us a low view as well as a biblical view of who we are. And as well then, the idea of obedience. The word obedience means to listen to, to submit to one's authority. So even with the word obedience, it has the idea of submitting. And there's a reason why in the big idea we put humility first, then obedience is because for true obedience to take place, the spirit of humility must be there. Um, I've seen it in my own life while I was growing up and even now, and even in my children's life. If you ever have one of those times you're disciplining a child and you can see I'm not listening to you face written all over them, it's until they humble themselves can we even handle the obedience part that needs to come. And so we're going to draw those analogies as well to our own life as we explore this even more. So let's start off in verse 1. Mark here, since he's writing to the Romans, he's, not going to cut, he's going to cut to the chase. There's no, I wonder what's going to happen. He doesn't even set up any arguments yet. John, when he's writing his gospel, will say, for this very purpose, I wrote this book so you may know, but that doesn't come until John chapter 20. Mark tells us the beginning here. The beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice he calls his story already good news. He's not going to let you determine if it's good news or not. He's telling you it's good news. And he says, now here's the good news. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, he's writing to a world that is very similar to ours. In our world we live in, absolutes are rough. You make an absolute statement, people start going, really? You're going to stand behind that absolute statement? Like calling something wrong and something right? You know, and all of these battles that we struggle with, are there really absolutes? And we know... Rome struggled with this. Do you remember when Pilate and Jesus are having a conversation? And Pilate, even in the conversation during that uh, crucifixion trial, Pilate says, what is truth? How do we even know right and wrong? As he's trying to decide, what do I do with this Jesus? Same thing in our culture today. What is right? What is wrong? And Mark starts off by going, let me tell you what's right. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's interesting as well, too, that Mark is going to immediately say that, listen, here's why Jesus, son of God, John the Baptist, is going to introduce us to him. It's a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that he quotes, and here's what he says. He says, I'm going to send my messenger before my face, meaning God says, behold, I send my messenger before your face. John the Baptist is my messenger. When God does something, he prepares the way for the thing to accomplish what he was set out to do. Just like when the gospel comes into our own lives, God prepares the way as well for the gospel in our own lives, working through our stubborn hearts, breaking our will down to his, and we respond in the gospel as well. And he says, my messenger will prepare the way before me. 
Notice he even says a voice. Not voices, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. You get this idea. If we could picture ourselves, imagine a barren land with just one voice crying out. There's a reason why he, in this prophecy too, we have one of the, this idea of wilderness. The wilderness for the Israelite people um, symbolizes a couple things. One of the things the wilderness concept symbolizes, first of all, if you're an Israelite, that's where you receive the commandments. You went out into the wilderness. You went from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, into the wilderness. The wilderness was a spot where God and man dwell. Moses was out in the wilderness when he met God. This idea of going into the wilderness, going to an isolated place to be with God, is something very significant. That is why the Israelite people were able to grasp the concept when John was saying, here's Christ, here's the forerunner of Christ. They came out into the wilderness to get alone and to hear from God. A couple things here we want to make sure we understand as we look at verse 4. John is baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, before we go too far, this baptism was not salvation, all right? This baptism is not something where everybody that got baptized, John's saying, now you're saved. There's a couple things I want to point out about this baptism. John's baptism was a one-time baptism that was required for radical repentance, and it was a sign of the approaching new covenant. Um, This alludes back to Jeremiah 31, 34, um, where we see the new covenant being explained to Jeremiah. He says, no longer shall one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The call of forgiveness of sins is getting the ball rolling for this new covenant, this gospel that is starting to be revealed playing out here. And since John is calling for them, they're starting to say something is happening here. The Israelite people also as well John is not granting them forgiveness, but he's calling for the confession of sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying God is beginning to work, basically get your house in order. The preaching of repentance that John is calling to is the renovation of our own hearts and the reformation of our own lives because as God is beginning to work, we first must confess our sins and turn to God. In my own life, um, as I was mulling through this on Saturday, my wife and daughters were gone at a, um, a uh, woman's retreat and daughter retreat type of deal. And Timmy and I, we woke up Saturday morning, and even though it was just one night without mom there, we took a, looked really around the house and went, oh, we better do some cleaning real quick here before mom gets home. <laughs> and even in our own lives, I remember growing up too, where mom would be away and dad would say, all right, guys, the day before she gets home, we got to, you know, here we go. That's the same, a little bit of the same concept. We're not making our wives God, but at the same time, too, we have this idea of getting things ready because God is going to begin to work, which gives us now the character and attitude of this forerunner. Point number one, the heart and humility and obedience of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is an impressive figure. Needless to say, none of us I don't think an angel came to tell your mom that she was pregnant, all right, first of all. And John the Baptist is going to be someone who's set apart to God, even from the womb. Even one who recognizes, which is amazing, the sound of the Savior, even in his mother's stomach. It's an amazing individual, as well as a man who's going to be, God has called to proclaim. 
the gospel. And as we see the gospel starting to come unfold, we, we see the way John is going to live and get an indication of what a gospel living is going to look like as we start to move in, into Mark's uh, gospel here. And here's what we see. And uh, we see this in verse uh, 6. John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, a couple things interesting here. In John's life, a gospel-centered life, a, gos- a life that has been impacted by the gospel, we start to already start to see a great deal of self-denial. John could have said, no, I'm not going to live this type of lifestyle, but God had called him to proclaim the message, and so self-denial is seen. We also see the mortification of the flesh, denying himself something for something that was better. We also see a holy contempt for the world, non-conformity to the world, Isn't that not also the way the gospel starts to shape and mold our lives as well? When the gospel truly comes in, we start to hold the things of this world incredibly loose and dim. Also, we see his diet. Now, his diet and clothing very clearly is nothing of any comfort. I've never worn camel's hair or a leather belt or eaten locust and honey together or anything like that. But isn't it interesting? We stop for a moment How many times are those two basic things that we say that we all need start to become gods in our lives? I mean, we live in a world where there's TV shows on how to make food the tastiest way possible. And food becomes a god we almost worship. And people who are able to create unbelievable food, and we hold them up as unbelievable chefs and these things like that, as well as the clothing world. That's, the food world is more of a struggle than the clothing world. I could really care less about that whole, that whole concept in my own life. But those become idols to us rather quickly. Matthew Henry writes, speaking about this, the more we sit loose to the body and alive and live above the world, the more we sit loose to the body and live above the world, the better we are prepared for Jesus Christ. But isn't it amazing how something we need to survive, right, food and clothing, can become a God? And John's showing us just a small inkling of what this looks like. Now, I'm not calling us to all adopt camel hair and leather belts, and, you know, after the service here, we only have locusts and wild honey in the gym, so I hope you enjoy the gospel living that we're going to try to do. That's not what I'm calling us to. What I'm calling us to is the gospel calls us to deny oneself for something greater. So in the end, guess what you find? You didn't deny yourself anything. You denied yourself something worthless for something of lasting treasure and value. Verse 7, we see the humility of John. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. Now, we see already in verse 5, we see that the country of Judah and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. So John the Baptist has got quite a crowd following him. All earthly speaking, his ministry is a massive success. Even Pharisees, as you other gospels will tell us, even he made it, the religious leaders even came out to check on what he was doing. And so anyone who could have been prideful of his ministry could have been John the Baptist. He could have said, look how great I am. But we see in John the Baptist a humility Because we all know how pride seeps into our lives in multiple ways, doesn't it? Isn't the root of all sin in our lives pride? I can do it my own way. I can dabble in that type of sin and it won't affect me because somehow I'm above the curve. You know, I have a right 
to be driving as fast as I want to drive? And how dare the police tell me I did something wrong? How dare, and we just can fill in the blank. I don't know how many times in my own life, I, as a parent, you know, I struggle in this way of disciplining. Sometimes I find myself disciplining out of my own comfort, as in it's too noise in the house, so I make a rule that everybody has to be quiet so I can enjoy my own quietness. Don't we do the same in other ways as well? Pride seeps in in so many different ways, but we see the humility of John the Baptist here, where he literally says, the one who's coming after me is greater than I, and you want to show how much greater than he is than I? I cannot even untie his shoe, not alone just tie his shoe, untie it. Because if we truly grasp this concept of humility, here's what he's literally saying. This is the structure he's saying. I don't even have the right to do this to the man. Down here like this. Now, last time I checked, that is not a stance of power, and that is not a stance of pride. Growing up in the Philadelphia area, you didn't go too far into inner city until you saw statues of Rocky doing one of these type of deals, which was not a stance of humility. I never saw a Rocky statue doing that. But yet this is what John is saying. This person that is coming, who is God himself, is so much greater than I, I'm not even able to do that. We see the beautiful humility of John even more when we see something interesting. John chapter 3, verse 30, where John actually um, says he must increase and I must stay the same at my same rate. No. He actually, John says, God must increase, I must decrease. We know the power of John's message was so great that actually in Acts chapter 19, Paul runs into a group of John the Baptist followers all the way over in Ephesus. I mean, a guy out of voice in the wilderness crying out had followers all the way even into Ephesus. Imagine the pride that this man could have had, but he was a foreigner of Christ, and he lived a life of humility and obedience. If you could turn your Bibles real quick to Luke chapter 1, John's father, Luke chapter 1, verse 67, John's father, Zechariah, is prophesying and you can almost feel as a dad, in the middle of this prophesying, in verse 76, it's like he's speaking this way, and he turns to the baby that he's holding and says this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord preparing his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. It's amazing, the life of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is starting to show us what a gospel-centered life looks like. To proclaim the message of those who are in darkness, the light. We move now from the life of John the Baptist... And immediately we're going to get, in verse 9, Jesus. We're going to see the heart and humility and obedience of Jesus. Verse 9, we see that Jesus came to be baptized by John in the river. 
And immediately when he comes out, we see a Trinitarian response of joy and blessing, and you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The whole Trinity involved in one moment here of the obedience of Christ. We see, number one, though, the, in the heart of humility that Jesus was first baptized, humbling himself and being obedient, as well as being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We're going to see that in verse 12 as well. Jesus, first of all, had to submit to all their God's requirements and to identify with those whose sin he had come to bear. His baptism proclaimed that he had come to take the sinner's place and to obey his Father, not just in baptism, but all the way to the cross. Is not this an inkling, this voice from heaven, an inkling of what we all desire one day for those who know Christ as we stand before God, for him to look at us and said, you're my beloved son. And I'm well pleased. You know, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Don't we desire that? But don't in our own hearts... One of the reasons I choke up because I look at my own sin. I look at my own pride. That boils to the surface without even being asked. It's right there. I look at my own disobedience. And how many times over and over and over again I disobey? When I know better. I mean, how many times we could quote verses that tell us what we're doing is wrong? And it's like, it's not as if I didn't know. It's I didn't allow it to take hold of my life and truly change me. We see the reason why Jesus had to be baptized in Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee, the Jordan of John, to be baptized by him. And John would prevent him saying, uh, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me. But Jesus answered, let it be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Christ came as a man on a mission to fulfill righteousness and to obey his Father. We see here in Mark chapter 1, 12, and 13, the Spirit immediately is going to drive him into the wilderness. We, the idea of driving, literally, it holds the idea as if someone driving cattle, someone moving someone. It is as if the, driven is the only way else you can describe it. As we say the word drive, what does that mean? You have a driven, you have this idea that you're being drawn along into the wilderness. We go from a highlight of obedience to another highlight of obedience, but it's obedience to something that is unique. Jesus knows the temptation that is going to come, and the trial that's going to become, and he allows himself to be led by the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, going into the wilderness. And we see the beautiful obedience of Christ, don't we, in the Gospels? While his time in the wilderness, what does he use to defeat Satan over and over and over again? It is written. It is written. And Satan is defeated. Giving us another example, what does it mean to live a life obedient to God? Now, there's an aspect of this wilderness here. Notice, too, though, as I said before, remember immediately, several times, verse 10, he came up out of the water and immediately, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him. There was a task to be done, even a task of winning temptation. To order to truly understand Jesus' temptations, we have to grasp the two-Adam concept that is in the Bible. The first Adam, obviously, being Adam in the garden, where in the garden, God... Our representative 
Adam, that was placed in the garden, was given an opportunity, was, his wife was being tempted, and what did he do? In the garden, now notice garden again, paradise, a beautiful area, all the food you could eat, except for one tree, and our first representative, Adam, failed the test miserably. In all of the luxury that this world, we could say, afford, if you wanted to use that term, yet now the second Adam, the perfect Adam, does what? Doesn't go where there's comfort. Mark even says there's wild animals there, a place not very safe, and doesn't just resist one temptation, three That is why Christ is our representative. We would want no other representative, would we not? That is why we see the beauty of this whole thing being played out here. Where Adam in the garden fails, Christ in the wilderness, alone by himself, with no food to eat. Forty days. And is victorious. We see the beauty of all of this being played out. We see the beauty of humility and obedience as bedfellows, as you would call in this situation, put together. Now, as, as I was mulling through this, I was on the phone with my wife, and I was, we were praying and talking about the message, and she said, you want to know something? Catherine wrote a journal. She has this little journal, and there's questions, and so my daughter, Catherine, who, you know, when you're really young, you can only write words you know how to spell type of deal. And so uh, she was writing in this journal, and the question in the journal was, how do I know God loves me? And if I, was, if I were to ask you, how do you know God loves you, most of us would turn around and point to the cross. But Catherine wrote this, which is very interesting. She goes, he calls me to obey, which I thought was interesting. How do we know God loves us? He gives us his word to obey. Is that not the most loving thing he could do? So here's the right path. Obey. So the question I have for us is this, the so what, which I want to park on for a little bit. As followers of Christ, am I living a life of humility and obedience just like John the Baptist and just like Jesus did? Does my life point the world to follow Christ? So in a way, these first 13 verses are kind of like a forerunner sermon to the book of Mark, because if you look at verse 14, and then the passage we'll be reading next week, it's in your bulletin at the bottom, the rest of the chapter, immediately we have what Jesus is doing, miracles, calling his disciples, and boom, the story goes on. But it's like Mark takes a pause here and introduces us to two incredibly godly men. Obviously, Jesus is godly by just definition, but John the Baptist as well, showing us what this gospel life is going to look like. We see the same concept where Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, is going to be talking this way as well. And he says this once I find it, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Is that not the humility and obedience that John the Baptist did? looking to the interest of the one who is going to come behind him, pointing others to Christ, not to himself, when in every worldly way he could be like, look at the messages, look at all the people coming around me, and he says, no, I want to point them to Christ. We see humility as well in Jesus' life when he wiped his disciples' feet 
We see obedience in Jesus' life when he, at the moment as he's being led to the, to the cross, and he cries out, not my will, but yours. We see this beautiful picture as well in the book of Isaiah, humility and obedience. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets to see the beauty and the holiness of God, Isaiah immediately is humiliated in a God-centered way and understands who he is, and he cries out, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. And it's only after God restores him that Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me, his obedience. God has done incredible things through this church. But it's my prayer, and I know it's Pastor Gabe and Pastor Chuck's prayer. We've been called for more than just this. We have not been called to complacency. We as a church have not been called to reminisce. We have been called to go and make Christ known to the world around us. There is a reason why each one of us has been born at this time. God is sovereign and he does not make mistakes. Yet it is easy to be tempted to go, oh, Christian living was so much easier when? And then we start wringing our hands and go, I don't know what it's going to be like to live in this generation of this culture. But he doesn't make mistakes. He's given you the ability and equipped you to make Christ known into a world that is incredibly more each day hostile to the things of Christ. If Mark is writing roughly when he's, most people believe he's writing, he's writing to a world where persecution is coming. Peter is going to be killed. And so don't, let's not fall into the world of reminiscing of the past instead of saying, what does God call me to do today? To make the gospel known to the world around us. May we not fall to complacency. Because if we're not careful... We can be here a year from now, and nothing's changed other than we've gotten a year older. We haven't shared the gospel with those around us, and all we do is sit there and go, oh, boy, this world's evil. If you read Revelation, the world getting evil is going to happen. So it shouldn't take us by surprise. But what it should do is say, we want to be a faithful generation. We want to be the generation of Christians who say, in our time, we were faithful to what God had called us to, and we did not conform to this world. Because generations will look back at us and say, were they faithful to God's word? And instead, are we going to be a generation, and my prayers, are we going to be a generation that is humble and an obedient church? Am I going to be part of a church where we truly understand who we are? And by God's grace, those in this room that know him, we're able to stand up and say, it's because of God that all this took place. And because of his great love for me, that causes me to desire to obey him. But boy, we can get tripped up quick, can't we? We can so easily start to minor on minor things and make them, we start to major on the minors concept, and before you know it, we start to allow little things to come in that break apart unity, that break apart things that God is saying, those are not what we are to be about. We are to be about what's behind me, knowing Christ and making him known to a lost and dying world. 
John the Baptist was like, I'm going whatever it takes to get the gospel message out. I'm not going to go into town to get better food. I'm going to eat what's out here because the gospel message is the most important. Jesus was driven by the Spirit. Do we allow the Spirit in our lives when he is working to drive us? Or are we always doing that? Uh, did, you, did you really mean that? If we were put for this generation and this purpose, and we all sit here and we say, yes, I understand, I was made for this time. Does that not also mean the people in your life who don't know Christ were put there by God as well for you to share the gospel with them? You live where you live for a reason. You have neighbors you have for a reason, to make Christ known. But we do it with a humble and obedient heart. Not out of pride, not out of, I need to check the spiritual check off, but because our love for God motivates us, just like he says, the beginning of the good news, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Are we proclaiming that into this Roman world that we live in? Or are we allowing our Christian ease to start to put us to sleep. Church, it's time to wake up. Tim, it's time to wake up. Because I'll tell you, you know what's easier to do? Spend time sitting in my office studying than it is to walk 15 feet to my neighbor and talk to him? The Gospel of Mark, I encourage you, you live in a time where there's no excuse to not be able to listen, read, or find the book of Mark. You can literally, I looked it up this week, you can listen to the book of Mark in multiple accents as well. All right? So like if you, the Scottish thing going, he got that, and you like that sound, you can listen to the book of Mark, someone reading that as well. Even down to your favorite readers of the book of Mark. So guess what? When you're driving, you could be listening to the book of Mark. If it finally stops reading when you're mowing, you can listen to the book of Mark. But it isn't amazing, what do we say? I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. There's three small group questions. I truly encourage you, mull on those. Meditate on those. Allow the book of Mark to, to really start to affect your life. As you listen to things, it's amazing. Our verse of the year, with the meditations and the thoughts of our hearts, how did that become pleasing to God? By what we meditate and what we listen to. It's amazing how the book of Mark will change you because it's the gospel and it changes people. What are we going to do with that? It's a challenge I'm throwing out to myself as well as you. And follow God in all the ways he's given us as we study the book of Mark. So dearly Father, we come before you as a people understanding our pride and our disobedience is something that we need to deal with. But it's through your Spirit's power that you give us the ability to live a life that is humble and obedient before you. As a songwriter said, we are so prone to wander. We can feel it. We're so prone to leave the God we love. So we pray that you take our hearts and you seal them. Seal them for the courts above. In your Son's strong name we pray. Amen.